Hey, welcome everybody to Talking Donkey International and our new television series, Country Wisdom. Let's set the tone for this new series of ours. It's found in Proverbs 4. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet and then all your ways will be sure. Join us now for Country Wisdom. You know, Jim, as we were driving up to this mountain here today, I noticed something about us, or at least something that is very different between you and me. And it was clear on that road. Every time we would come to a spot where it went steeper or got narrower or both, and it's filled with rocks, I'm thinking we should turn around. And you're going, oh, we can make this. There were times I wasn't looking out the window because we're on the edge and I didn't want to know how close we were getting to the edge. Clearly, you like risks. You like adventure, you call it, much more than I do. I've always liked to take the safe route. Uh, when I was a girl, I'd go to a birthday party. Have you ever played musical chairs? Oh yeah. I think every kid has played musical chairs. I was clinging to my chair until I saw the next one was empty and that I could get to it. I'm not risking giving up this chair, this safety, until I know I've got that one You're waiting. risk averse. <laughs> I am risk averse. And I have heard that about you. Uh, didn't your friends used to have, what did you give them, hey, bumper stickers or was no it t-shirts? There is no use telling tales on television. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was it they said? I survived a ride with Jim Air? Yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah, well, <laughs> today I survived so far, but uh, we still have to get down. But I just always wanted to take the safe way. I like knowing what's ahead. I, I like plan Bs. I like knowing, well, if this doesn't work, I've got this and I'm still okay. There've been a lot of people though that have taken risks that I would never consider taking. And I don't know if that means that they're foolhardy and I'm the smart one, or if maybe it's the other way around. But sometimes I think it's worth examining our lives and seeing just how much that safety is worth. Maybe it has to do with the commitment, some kind of commitment, some kind of goals and directions. I think so. I think sometimes I might be too comfortable, that safety might be too important. And I wonder if that's really been worth it. You know, what might I have done if I'd been a little braver, if I'd let go of that chair a little sooner? I might have won more games. So you still got out. You were risk averse and you got out anyway. Sometimes, yes. Uh, maybe it's why I didn't like birthday parties except for the cake. There you go. <laughs> I think cake is the only reason to go to a birthday party. So what's uh, the lesson out of this? Well, I'm wondering if I've played it too safe. You know, the road less traveled. I would have looked at those two roads when they forked and said, well, it looks like more people have gone this way. This is probably the safer route. I think you would have done the opposite. Could be, could be. So are you off to take another fork in the <laughs> yeah, road? Yeah, I'm gonna go take another fork. <laughs> <laughs>
You know, I've had the privilege of being in Kathmandu, Nepal, at least a couple of times. But probably the draw for that country is Mount Everest. 29,029 feet, the biggest mountain in the world, the highest mountain peak in the world. It's incredible. For years, no one could climb it. Why, they thought maybe you could go blind. You'd, your brain would explode if you got to that height, that elevation. Nobody knew. It was a mystery. And finally, there were a couple of men that, and, and really a, a nation, the British that said, we've got to climb it. But unfortunately in those days, in those years, there was only a few permits given out, one permit per year. In 1954, the French had the permit already. 1955, the Swiss had the permit. That only left 1953. So they decided to go ahead. It didn't give them much time to to prepare, but they decided to. Now, I've, I've been on the trail. The trail, <laughs> it's a long trail. It actually started in Kathmandu. And they had to walk the full length to get all the way to Everest. Miles and miles, a seven week journey. Tremendous time, tremendous dedication. Hillary was a 33 year old beekeeper. He, he was a, a strapping man over six feet tall, fully energetic and he combined with another young man, Tenzing Norgay. The two of them together, the, the little Nepalese fellow and this big old tall uh, New Zealander said, we're going to climb it. But they didn't get the draw. There was two other fellows that got the draw, which meant they had the first chance at the ascent. They worked and worked and worked and they got up higher and higher and higher. And 300 feet from the summit, they ran out of oxygen, they ran out of energy, out of time, they had to turn around and go back down. 300 feet. Well, the next was the ascent for Hillary and Tenzing Norgay. They went, they went, they went, they climbed, they gave everything they had. They got to the peak. They'd summited, first men in the world to summit. And they said, you know, we had one little tiny camera and I didn't know that Tenzing had any idea how to operate it. So he said, I just stood there and I took pictures all the way around everywhere to show that we'd been there. And I took a couple of Tenzing and then we came down. That's all the time we had. They asked, well, how did you do it? How did you do it? He said, well, the biggest battle is overcoming yourself. Think about that. The biggest battle is overcoming yourself. Now, 19, oh, 19, now let's see, what was it? No, 2013, actually. 2013, there was another fellow. Uh, how do you say his name? Hushiro Mura, Japanese fellow. His name doesn't really matter, but he climbed it. Why is it exciting to me? Because he was 83 years old. <laughs> well, I'm getting a little older, and that's exciting to see a man like that. And you say, how did this guy do it? How did he do it? He did it with 100% commitment. It is sure good to get out of all that snow, get down here in a beautiful location in the sunshine. I listen to that water and I think about closing my eyes. You can almost hear the, the surf and the waves of the sea roll. Now, the reason I'm thinking about that is I'm thinking about Hernan Cortez. Cortez was born right near the water. Born in 1485, he was born to a family that they weren't high nobility, but he was kind of an up and comer, at least he tried to be, he wanted to be. 
tried to get into government. It only went so-so for him until he finally, he went to Cuba and there he was able to get a little higher in the government. He finally worked with people and, and finally was able to round up a bunch of ships. He wanted to go to Mexico. You see, prior to him, there'd been at least two expeditions that had failed to conquer the land. And he thought, if I can conquer the land, if I can do this, I'll be a great, great man. So as he's gathering it all up, he got permission. And at the last minute, he hears, you can't go. He didn't hear it directly, but someone told him that's what the government had said. So at the last second, he gathers up all the ships, all the men, and he sails. And I believe it was 1518, he heads out to Mexico. He arrives in 1519. And there, there's five million Aztecs that greet him. How many? Five million. Now, let me, I wrote down here for you, just so you can kind of understand. Uh, Cortez had 11 ships. He had 13 horses, 110 sailors, and 553 soldiers. That's his entire army. That's his entire group. But he wants to take over a nation of 5 million. I'll, I'll save you the time of doing the, uh, the numbers, the crunching here. It's 7,541 to 1. 7,541 to 1. What on earth is this guy going to do? Does he have a plan? Well, yes, he did. He actually had a plan. He went down to his ships. He set every single one of them on fire. Burned every single ship. Every single one. You see, for him, there was no plan B. There was no opportunity for failure. Either we make it or we die right here. And guess what? He made it. He made it. He, he formed alliances. He, he did all kinds of things. He worked here and there until he overcame that entire nation of five million people. Today, we still have the city of Mexico City. That, that monstrous city that I think is maybe the largest, if not one of the largest in the entire world because of his 100% commitment. 100% commitment. It makes a real difference in a life. It had been a torrential downpour in England. The streets were almost running like the river. Benjamin Mee had his arm extended all the way down into a drain hole trying to unplug it when his phone rang. He answered the phone and it was Cameron Crowe. He said, hey, I'm here on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood and guess what? Matt Damon has agreed to play you. Sorry, I gotta go. And he hung up the phone. Well, Hollywood, you see, it was the movie, I Bought a Zoo. Now, in the story, the zoo is in another country, but it was actually in England. Benjamin and his wife were having terrible trouble. She was a 40-year-old lady who had cancer. And they wanted to do something. And the sister sent him an advertisement about this zoo that was for sale, an old busted down, broken down, horrible zoo that was in such great disrepair, it was just unbelievable. How would they even buy it? It was way over a million dollars. But the family sold everything they had. The mother helped and chipped in and they found this zoo that had an extra bedroom, an extra house on it that mom could live to. So they all went in together and they bought the zoo. Shortly, the wife died. Terrible situation, but people asked when the movie came out and he actually wrote a book, how did it happen? How, how did you do all this? How did you survive? And why'd you do it in the first place? Well, I wrote down his answer because 
is very apropos for today's study, says sometimes all you need is 20 seconds of insane courage. And I promise you, something great will come of it. Twenty seconds of insane courage. I think of David and Goliath, the story in the Bible. You know that story. David takes on a mighty giant. We believe that giant was probably nine feet tall. Little David, the shepherd boy. And guess what? God worked through him and a mighty miracle occurred. He, he beat that giant. And then I think of, well, there's another fellow, Jonathan, whose father was the king, King Saul. There was thousands of chariots. There were thousands of men of war. They all came against Israel to, to beat Israel to a pulp. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, we've got to do something. What can one man and his armor bearer do against an entire army like that? Jonathan said, let's go out over here to this rock outcropping. I know the Philistines are over there. Let's go there and let's reveal ourselves to them. And if they say, come up to where we are, that's a sign from God that God will be with us. They went over to that location and sure enough, they showed themselves, hey, fellas, what are you doing up there? Philistines looked down and said, hey, little men, come on up here. We'll show you a thing or two. At that point, it's too late to back out. But in their hearts, they didn't want to back out. They wanted to follow along with what God was going to do through them. They started climbing up the rocks. They had to go we're told, on their hands and knees to get up. And there's at least 20 men on this escarpment. 20 men, brave warriors of the Philistine army. The next scene, they've killed every single one of them. So much so that the fear runs throughout the entire Philistine army. Beware, get out of the way. These guys, God is with them. And because of that 20 seconds of insane courage of climbing on their hands and knees up a mountain to attack another army, God did mighty things through them. That's what you and I need is 20 seconds of insane courage. We have a problem and the problem is commitment. We are so often unable, unwilling to really commit to God. Over and over in stories in the scripture, we're shown people who gave up everything when they had God in their sights. They met Jesus and turned their backs on their former lives. Zacchaeus, he worked for the IRS of that time and he had cheated people. He was rich, but he hadn't gotten all that money honestly. After he met Jesus, he not only promised to pay back everything he'd stolen, he said he'd pay back four times what he owed. That's commitment. Then you have Peter and Andrew, fishermen. When Jesus came by and told them to follow him, they did. They didn't stop to argue about it. They didn't stop to make sure all their ducks were in a row before they walked away. They simply followed Jesus and didn't look back. You've got people like Matthew, another tax collector. Jesus told him to follow him. Matthew left a pile of money on a table in front of him, walked away from it. He wasn't saying, oh, just a minute, let me put this somewhere safe so I can come back to it. He just left his life, left his income and followed Jesus. 
Mary Magdalene. She had some uh, fits and starts there. She would commit and backslide, commit and backslide, we're told. But once the commitment took hold, once she went for it wholeheartedly, her commitment went deeper than I think even the disciples. We need to have that kind of commitment. We need to stop being like Israel. Israel kept doing the same thing and thinking they'd get a different result. And too often in our lives, in my life, I do the same thing. Stumbling along, same old life, wishing that we had a closer relationship with God. We want to spend eternity with Jesus, but we can't find the time to spend a little few minutes with him right now. We need to burn the boats. Humans are obsessed with love, or at least the idea of love. But unlike our often shallow definition, God's love is real. He's always fair, and He always wants what's best for us. That's why He chose to give us the book of Revelation, chose to warn us what was going to happen in the future. The messages of the three angels of Revelation reveal God's true love. Go to TalkingDonkeyInternational.org and request offer number 124 and get your free copy of Love's Last Call. There's an interesting story in the book of Kings, matter of fact, 1 Kings in chapter 19. It talks about Elijah the prophet. See, Elijah had, well, he was God's man for many years, but he began thinking he was kind of the only one, you see, and, and God said, okay, it's time for you to appoint your successor. Go out and find this other man. God tends to do that with us. If we uh, kind of get a big head, if we kind of feel like we're the only one around, God works out situations to show us, no, no, you're not the only one. I've got many others. And matter of fact, the only way that you're worthwhile is by living in me and allowing me to work through you. That's the only time a real blessing can come is when we allow God to work through us, not when we go out and do this and go out and do that and do all these things. I get so, so, I wouldn't say upset, but it bothers me so much when we get together in church boards and we plan and we plan and we plan and we run out and say, hey God, I've got this great plan, come follow me. You never find that in the Bible. What you find in the Bible is where God is at work and then God says, hey, come join me. Anyway, he said, go out and find this young man. So Elijah traveled out and he came to this farm. And this particular farm, he saw a young man out there with 12 yoke of oxen. They're all plowing and plowing this huge field. He goes down to him, throws his mantle over him in a way that says in the east, follow me. Well, Elijah immediately knows what it means. He, he runs up to him. He said, let me go kiss my mother and my father goodbye. The old prophet said, no, no, that's okay, you just stay. In other words, it was a test. God likes to test each one of us to see if our commitment is real, if our commitment is genuine. No, no, you just stay. But instead, the young man went, kissed the mother and father, slaughtered all, all of the, the working animals, and had built up a big bonfire with what? Where did he get the wood? It says he took all the, all the yoke, all the wooden yoke of all the oxen, 
put them in a pile and created this huge bonfire and put all the meat on it and invited all the neighbors. While the neighbors, he had an announcement to make. He said, I'm leaving. I'm committing my life to follow this prophet of God. Wow, follow this prophet of God. But when he got to the prophet, he said, look, basically I will follow you if you promise me that you'll give me twice the, twice the miracles and the blessings that you have. Elijah said, no, no, that's not mine to give, only God's. But if you see this and such and such, then you know that God has answered that prayer. Well, later on, that's exactly what happened. He saw the very things that Elijah had laid out that God would do if he was to answer Elijah's prayer. And guess what? In all of Elijah's life, he did 14 miracles. Elisha did 28 miracles. 28, you say, well, why did God answer the prayers of this man like that? I mean, he was asking for an amazing blessing. The reason was is because he was 100% committed to God. He turned in his resignation to Elijah Farms, Inc. He burned everything in the past. He was ready to follow God wherever God was leading. How about you? Are you ready to follow God? Do you have that 100% commitment in your life to follow God wherever he leads that you might receive the blessings of God? I was hoping to find a butterfly because a butterfly is really about what this part is all about. Dr. Edward Lorenz, you see he was a, a meteorologist professor actually at MIT. Uh, quite a guy, he, he knew and understood a lot of things, but back about 60 years ago, he took some weather pattern figures, he plugged them into a computer and he went away to get a cup of coffee. Now, in those days, <laughs> computers weren't like this. You know, I probably have enough uh, programming uh, here to handle the entire Apollo space program. But he didn't. He had to plug in these figures, about 12 different variables as I remember. So he went away to have coffee. He came back and what he had was not anything like what he'd had just a few days prior. He wondered what happened, what changed? I mean, everything was different. No weather pattern was the same. Well, he began looking and he realized this time he had plugged in 0.506 was his number. 0.506, he left off the rest of the numbers 127. You see, the whole figure was 0.506127. But he just thought, it, it's almost nothing. It's infinitesimal, I'll just leave it out. But no, that tiny bit clear at the end of that, the, you know, the billionth, changed everything. So much so that, and I, I wrote his, where he did this, he wrote this in 1972 at an annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, what he called the butterfly effect. He said that a butterfly flapping its wings in Brazil can produce a weather change in Texas. <laughs> Think about that. A butterfly that flaps its wings can change the weather patterns clear up in another country, another nation. That tiny, tiny bit. See, for you and for me, one action, one action aimed in a new direction can change everything can absolutely change your life if you take that single step in a new direction. 
Don't underestimate the power of one little decision, one little change, one step closer to God. Because He can take that little decision of yours, that small change, and turn it into something more powerful than you can even imagine. Jim, why is it, do you think, that people hesitate to make that first step, to, to lean toward Jesus? What do you think it is that's stopping them? You know, maybe there's a key and I had dinner one time with a psychologist and I asked him a question. I said, is there a single common thread that's woven through every single one of your patients' stories or lives? It didn't take him any time at all to respond. He said, Jim, he said, every single one of those patients think they're going to lose something of value if they let go. You know, I hate to admit it, but I think I can relate. Um, I remember the first time you convinced me to go on a mission trip. I could understand why you wanted my husband. He's a physician. Of course he'd be useful. And everybody who had been on them before, they all were talking about how it changes your life, that you get closer to God and you don't come back the same person. And I had to admit that there was a little tiny part of me going, ooh, do I want to go? Because we get satisfied. I was afraid I don't want to say afraid to change, and I certainly wasn't afraid to get closer to God. It was just, what is that change going to look like? What will that new version of me look like? Something and, different than what you were. Right, and I'm always afraid of change, you know? So it took a little pushing uh, to get me to willingly go and experience that new thing. So here, I've got a question maybe for you, for, for our audience today. The Bible in the last chapter, basically of Revelation, it says, he that overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he will be my people. They will be my people. We inherit everything. Eternal <laughs> happiness, eternal life, eternal glory, sit with God in his throne and rule the universe. All of this, how do you, how do you think about that and want to hang on to the stuff here on planet Earth? I think you really have to give some thought, or I certainly have had to do that. What exactly is it that I'm clinging to and why? You know, why is it that I'm afraid to give that up, afraid to yeah. give it over? Because there are times, whether it's a little habit that maybe could use some tweaking uh, or a big change like giving your heart to God to start with, making the decision, I'm going to be a yeah. Christian and I don't care who knows it anymore. Uh, whatever that change is, sometimes you just have to ask, what am I clinging to and why am I gripping so tightly to it? Yeah. I know I found myself at one time gripping and hanging and everything and I finally made that decision and it was absolutely life-altering for the better. For absolutely well, the better. Well, it always is, I it, think. It always is when you're choosing God, yeah. yeah. Folks, I urge you, Janice, we both urge you to choose God, to take that 20 seconds of insane courage and make a move toward God, right? Exactly. I mean, whatever it is, whatever you're doing, move toward God. Have that 100% commitment for a moment. It will be life-changing. Hey, thanks for joining us for Country Wisdom. See you next time. <laughs>